Hello and welcome to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Chester Osborne. Chester is the chief winemaker at Darenberg Winery. Uh, this is one of the leading wineries in Australia uh, and I was out there late last year uh, spent a bit of time in Adelaide, which is a city I, I've really grown to love, actually. It's um, one of the cities in Australia that's really sort of taken to my books and workshops. Uh, you know, I was just get a really good reception there and full of really interesting people, very can-do attitude, uh, just a really nice place to hang out. And um, just outside of Adelaide, you've got some of the best wine in the world. I really knew nothing about wine before I... Uh, spent some time uh, in Adelaide and uh, there's some people there who are very fanatical and showed me around lots of different wineries which by the way is a lovely way to spend a, a Saturday afternoon just driving from winery to winery and uh, having someone else do the driving uh, but yeah there's like um, just outside Adelaide you've got three sort of main wine areas there are some smaller ones too but you've got the Barossa Valley um, some of the best uh, red wines in the world uh, produced at the Barossa Valley. Uh, probably most famous for Jacob's Creek, uh, which in my opinion is not amongst the best wine in the world, uh, but just a huge, uh, just a huge operation and kind of made that area famous. Uh, you've got the Adelaide Hills, closer to the town of Adelaide, uh, best known for Penfolds, which does make some really nice wines. Uh, and then McLaren Vale, which is a, just a really beautiful area. And um, there's some nice little kind of boutique wineries with fun branding and stuff like that. Like Molly Dukas is a good one of those. Uh, but probably my favourite is Darenberg. So when I was uh, last in Australia, I kind of, with my team, sat down and said, who would I really love to interview in Australia? And, you know, if we could set something up, who would I really like to chat to? And I thought, I'd love to chat to the person who makes the wine at Darenberg. And sure enough, we uh, we emailed Chester uh, we played a bit of uh, text message ping pong for three or four days while there was um, a lot going on in his life. But we managed to sit down. Um, so this is me with Chester Osborne in his garden on a Saturday, sort of, you know, late morning. Uh, the birds are singing in the background. You'll hear a little bit of lawnmower noise, I think, at one point as well. Uh, but we're sat in his garden. So here's me chewing the fat, talking busy with the chief winemaker of Darenberg, Chester Osborne. <laughs> Right, so we are rolling, um, and lovely to be here in your lovely garden as well. In the, thanks for suggesting coming outside and not doing this uh, in the house. It's lovely and green, isn't it? Yeah, lovely to be out here. Um, so, um, yeah, like I'm here with Chester Osborne from Darenberg, um, one of the, I'd say, most famous wineries in Australia, right? That's probably a good place to start. <laughs> you, well, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Hi, Graham. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, and um, was, we were just saying there, just before I press record here, that I've been uh, doing these conversations with a whole range of people with very interesting uh, job titles and interesting roles in the world. And uh, you are you are a chief winemaker, so yeah, and viticulturalist we like to say as well. Right, so it kind of felt like that was a, a job title that I needed to uh, definitely tick off as part of Beyond Busy. Sure, yeah, um, well, you pick someone. I'm busy, so you pick <laughs> the right person there. Yeah, so we've been trying to get together for the last couple of days, and you've been uh, in sort of back-to-back meetings and everything else. And we're here at in your back garden here in Adelaide. Uh, the sun is out, and it's uh, yeah, just a lovely day here. 
Um, so uh, let's start with bu with busy then. So you've been busy for the last couple of days. Uh, what have you been up to? Oh um, well, I'm busy all the time. Um, but uh, I've had uh, we're Darrenberg is a member of the first families of wine, which are multi generational twelve companies in Australia. And we had our board meeting, which uh, is bi yearly. So so that was a fairly big day. And uh, and then uh, there was a, the Australian Society of Viticulture and Enology Awards night. So I right. do. Uh, talk there and uh, and then uh, the next day I had uh uh, a meeting in town, and I had root canal treatment on my tooth, <laughs> right. and then and then straight to lunch for a charity auction for a variety club where they uh, uh, auctioned off barrels of wine. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then uh, I was actually supposed to be going out last night, but I felt too ill, so <laughs> had a vegetable night. <laughs> and um, I suppose you know your sort of your role within Darrenberg, so it's a family-owned business and fourth generation? Yes, yes. So my great-grandfather uh, worked for Hardy's Wines from oh, okay. 1881, uh, and he uh, left Hardy's in 1912 and bought the vineyard at yeah. Clarenvale, Darrenburg, started Darrenburg. So we've been going for 104 years, but we've actually been in the wine industry for 130-something years. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and then, yeah, we've all worked through the winery. I was the first trained winemaker, so Dad said when I came home, we said, well, you're trained, so you make the wine, you know, it's like thinking that I'll know what I'm doing. And, you know, you go to university and you're not really, you're not making wine, you're hearing all the theory. You do a little bit, it's time, yeah, you know, but, yeah. you know, you fumble, fumble through that. Uh, and But uh, I didn't actually change anything in the winery. I left it as it was. And okay. Dad hadn't changed, modernised the winery because he didn't really know what I wanted to do. He didn't want to change it all. And then me come home, you know, a few years later and go, well, let's change it again. So, so he just left it as it was. And I, I left everything as it was, uh, just uh, other than crushes and and you know gas, inert gases and, yeah. and uh, refrigeration. I didn't really change a lot. In fact, I actually changed the vineyard back into quite old-fashioned, like he was doing, which actually annoyed him quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so he tried to modernise, and then you were sort of taking things back to the, the vineyard-wise. He was, you know, started using <clears throat> herbicides under the vine and cultivating. Well, mm. he when he first started working for the winery, it was in the forties. And he's still, he's still around, he's 90 years old, and he still goes to work every day, my, Darry Osborne, my father. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, so he's another busy man. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, um, he got a, the first five years of his life, he worked the vineyard with horses. Yeah. Which okay. you imagine is pretty hard to do 150 acres on your own yeah. with a few horses. Uh, so uh, in 1948, he got the first rubber-tied tractor in McLarenville. And he loved that. He could bore up and down the rows and kill all the weeds and whatever, <laughs> plants and whatever. And he thought that the vines would be so much better. And in actual fact, the vines were worse off gradually because he gradually sterilised the soil because you're killing all the plants all the time. And the vines actually stopped growing into that area. And, okay. and so they only use what's down deep underneath. And uh, so I told my father, we're going to stop cultivating. We're going to stop um, herbicides, uh, stop irrigating where we can, and we'll and stop fertilizer. Because basically fertilizer and irrigation gets in the way of the soil and geology flavor. Right. Okay. And so you're not really making true wines. Uh, and so the, you don't you don't get that real minerality, that length of tannin and acid and fruit that comes yeah. out together yeah. at the end of the wine. And and the you know the future of the wine is 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 much more forward. So it's not the future yeah. of the wine isn't really bound up and sitting there ready to open. And so so we did all. I said I'd do all that, and my father said, well, we better sell the vineyard now while we get something for it before all the vines 
Christmas die. And he was really amazed at how the yields didn't go down and the quality of the grapes went up quite a lot. So let's go. Let's jump straight into talking about winemaking, wine seeing as we're on that road already. Then, so um, do you do you think it's a is it an art or a science to you? I mean, like you, like you're the creative vision when it comes to Darenberg. Like, do you, do you, do you see that as being your role as an artist, or is it about all of that science that we talked about? It's very now? much art. Yeah. yeah, science is just there as a means to make the art. Just like any 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 art, yeah. really, there's some certain amount of science in in uh, in it to a certain degree, just to just to help you make the art. But but you've really got to get out there, taste the grapes. No one can tell you. I mean, there's so science behind tasting grapes. Just you out there, you taste it, yeah. and working out exactly how to grow the grapes based on the flavour every year, and how you need to modify that vineyard a little bit to get that better flavour grape. And then, and then uh, exactly when to pick it is you know, takes time to understand. Yeah. But you can see the flavours in the grape that are going to turn into the wine exactly as they are in the vineyard. So then, uh, in in the winery. Um, uh, Really, we, we're just doing as we always have, little tiny submerged cap ferments, uh, two to five tonne fermenters with no plunging, no pumping over, so very minimal handling at all, Very uh, lots of whole berries in the ferment, so yeah. it's as gentle as possible. Well, we foot tread them once through the ferment, uh, about two-thirds of the way through to cool the, cool the skins down for that latter part of the ferment. Keeping, yeah. keeping the ferment cold at the end means that we don't extract the harder tannins and the oilier tannins so you end up more flowery vibrant uh slightly more elegant but flowery wine at yeah. the end. and and then you have to taste it every day and decide exactly when the tannin level's right just like a tea bag in your in your tea and you leave it there too yeah, long okay. and it ends up with too much tea it's exactly the same too much tannin and so the same with uh, grapes because i was thinking like how, how in control are you of that process so with the grapes you know, and the the point at which you pick them, it's about tasting the grapes and kind of getting that, you know, like over time you'd know what it was like the previous year and all that sort of thing. And then so, and then once 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 you're creating the wine, like once it's fermenting, it's it's just general every day or so, just going in and just and just tasting it and just getting a sense of like where it's up to. Is that yeah. is that really? Yeah. Where it's so about? we don't have to look at it in the early stages. We look at the aromas, yeah, just to make sure there's no off aromas. Um, and uh, and then um, it's the last you know, four or five days of city on skins that yeah. we are the really important ones about not over extracting the tannins or or under extracting them you know uh, and occasionally we'll leave grapes in contact with the juice for another two or three weeks after fermentation okay. if we think there's a certain greenness and austerity and thinness in there we'll try and polymerize those tannins you know make the little tannins into bigger tannins yeah. which taste better and richer in, in the mouth and, and and get rid of some of the bitterness that sort of drops out in, in there so and is that just down to you to make that decision or like are you tasting it and your dad's tasting it and lots of other people are having their say as well well everyone wants to do that it's yeah. the best fun <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so it seems to be growing all the time my father doesn't do it anymore at 90 he doesn't he couldn't be bothered doing that <laughs> um, but uh, my I'm chief winemaker I'm a senior winemaker and then there's three other winemakers so we okay. end up you know, it takes quite a while. We have uh, 250 fermenters going at any one time. So a typical morning would be looking at maybe 40 or 50 fermenters wow. so, uh, okay. uh, yeah. every morning for months. <laughs> and so yeah. it's quite a bit of tasting to do. And, yeah, they all want to come along and do it because it really is 
you're seeing we all know those vineyards so well yeah and what they we look at them obviously when they're in barrel too blending yeah. whatever every barrel gets looked at but so so you get very personal with them and and uh when they're being made right there and then it's really really exciting time to be seeing exactly as as they are because they they they, uh, they show their characters as pretty quickly you know, what yeah. they're going to be and we work with 37 grape varieties to make 60 different wines yeah. so, so it becomes a, really quite a, a big uh, jigsaw and you've been introducing new grape varieties into McLaren Vale like Viognier was were you the first people to do that in McLaren Vale yes uh, back yeah. in the 90s during yeah. the red wine boom the export boom uh, I madly planted masses of Viognier Marsan and Roussan <laughs> which everyone, everyone thought I was pretty crazy because they put on a conference saying the great white hopes they called it because of what I was doing <laughs> and uh, uh, the wines they selected from a America and France were fairly old because it was hard to find them and then most of them looked pretty buggered actually yeah. <laughs> so they thought I was pretty crazy but uh, but I really did believe we did amazing Grenache Shiraz and Mourvedre we still do mm. and so the white roans just made sense that we planted them and everyone was a bit nervous about the amount of red being planted so growers were coming out to me saying we want to plant a white uh, not you know, Chardonnay, Riesling and Sauvignon like we've always done but something new and whatever I said we'll plant Viognia so we, all these growers planted Viognia and over a couple of years I thought I'd better add up how much Viognia I had planted and uh, there was 140 acres with us and our growers which wow. is more than all of Condria where it came from in France wow. and we hadn't even made a wine at this stage to know whether it worked it would have been the biggest plantings in the southern hemisphere Easily. So but everyone thought you were crazy when you when you planted that. Uh, did you ever think you were crazy? Did you ever think is this the wrong move? Everyone's I, I think I always red think I'm a little bit like... crazy, <laughs> a little bit too passionate sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think yeah, it's been reported a few times that I do a few crazy things. But but uh, they've always worked out. So I don't suppose I'm as crazy as what it, yeah. some or I might think. But uh, but the uh, we have a wine called the Hermit Crab, which is a Marsan Viognier blend or Viognier Marsan depending on the year. Uh, more Viognier yeah. nowadays actually. Uh, named after Hermitage in France. The major white grape of Hermitage is Marsan and uh, Marsan um, uh, is part of that blend. Oh, we'll get back to it probably. Hold on. Uh, so Hermitage means house of the hermit okay. and a hermit crab carries his house around the whole time and uh, uh, the hermit crab's on the beaches at McLaren Vale and the hermit crab's as fossils in the limestone. And so the roots are down there sucking up little bits of fossilised hermit crab <laughs> into the grapes and into the wine. Nice. So it, that's why it's called the hermit crab thing, Marsan. And, and it's like part of your job is to come up with the names of, of all of the wines. Um, and uh, I, I took home a bottle of the uh, Senosilicophobic cat wine uh, that you do uh, when I was uh, in McLaren Vale last year. Uh, so tell me about the senosilicophobic cat. Yeah, well, senosilicophobia <laughs> is the fear of an empty glass, yeah. which uh, a lot of people in this industry suffer from, <laughs> uh, and for people in the world everywhere. Uh, and I, uh, I had a cat called Booze, whose real name was non-alcoholic booze. <laughs> and so he had senosilicophobia in his life. He thought he could drink, being called booze, but real name non-alcoholic <laughs> booze, he wasn't allowed to. So it was a huge ginger cat with big... Uh, bloodshot eyes so it looked like he drank but he didn't um, <laughs> and uh, and so it's a Sagrantino Cinso blend which is would be the only blend of the, in the world of that Sagrantino is a, a very tannic variety from Umbria in Italy okay. uh, one of the most tannic varieties if not the most and Cinso is one of the most elegant fragrant varieties of France down the south of France 
has a beautiful bath salt lavender like character and a yeah. nice juicy fineness and uh, a very fragrant length and so I'm toning back some of the tannins and, and giving other flowery notes and it, it works extremely well the mm. very first vintage won a trophy in the alternative wine show so. but I've, I've since then started bottling the pressings of Sagrantino which would be very very tannic and, and uh, concentrated or it is um, and that wine's called the Arthur Zagoraphobic Cat and Arthur's agoraphobia is the fear of being forgotten. And pressings of Sagrantino will not be forgotten. But it's named actually after a cat I had called Audrey Hepburn. And Audrey was just an ordinary tabby. And so instead of Audrey, I called her ordinary all the time, much to my partner's annoyance. <laughs> but uh, so the cat was really had a fear of being forgotten, being called Aww. ordinary. And whenever we took the dog for a walk, the cat would walk along with us all the time, just right. like it was a dog, you know, with tongue hanging out for miles and whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, uh, one of our new wines. Cool. Um, and so, I was just asking you before we uh, press record about whether you have other members of the team who are desperate to uh, give you their pet names and kind of you know uh, or have you know wines like named after them or whatever because it's like that kind of feels like must be one of the fun parts of the job for you is like coming up with those like interesting names and interesting yeah. stories behind the yeah. different wines. I always used to say that I did come up with all my names never before two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and I think that's probably right for a lot for the first sort of 20 years yeah. and now it's pretty much on the toilet every morning reading the dictionary <laughs> so, so the names have become even more complex because yeah. of the dictionary yeah but uh, but uh, everyone's allowed to have an input into names and whatever yeah. and uh, but they're probably 95% would be mine and 5% are someone's influence so, yeah. so you know, I don't own 100% Um, and what's interesting to me about um, Darren Burgers being a family business is obviously like so your dad uh, came up with the branding around putting the the red stripe on the bottle right yep that's right Um, and so that's a that's a big uh, sort of branding device for you in the sense of you know when you see your bottles on the shelf next to everything else you can pick out Darren Berg on the shelf yeah you can drive by a bottle shop you know and look in and you'll see it and you can see Darren Berg quite easy and then within that, you get to play around and come up with new names and stuff, but still it has that distinctive look as, as you look at it from like further away. Um, but like I suppose in, in a way, to, like is that quite a, a neat summary of what it must be like to be in a family business? So like you're taking a lot of the stuff that your dad had created, like that branding device of the Red Stripe, but then you're doing your own thing with it and sort of taking it on to that next stage and innovating yeah. in different ways like yeah it was uh, wine back in the 60s and 70s <clears throat> was considered a um i suppose a sort of stuffy sort of thing a bit you know yeah. people people were quite serious most of the time about it and uh and my father's a bit of a joker but you know still had serious name labels and whatever and then in the 80s we started uh, coming up with some more stage names that value added to the wine like Old Vine we were the first people in the world to call a wine Old Vine yeah and we had the High Trellis and um, um, Noble we were the first people in the world to call a wine Noble after the Noble Rot the Petritus wine now it's a whole category everywhere in the world as well so, mm. so and, and and then I gradually went oh let's be a bit more creative and a bit more fun yeah uh, and I work on this philosophy I'm deadly serious about our wine up until when the wine ends up in the bottle 
And from then on, nothing I can do will change that wine. So I might as well start having fun because that's what everyone's going to do when they right. when yeah. they open the bottle. We're going to drink it and have fun. So yeah. I thought, well, let's yeah. have fun. So I thought quirky label names will, uh, will really uh, add to the fun. And add, it actually adds to the whole wine uh, value because suddenly um, people own it so they'll go out there and instead of buying Derenberg Shiraz they'll go and buy a bottle of Dead Arm Shiraz and yeah. then they just call it Dead Arm they just walk in I want a bottle of Dead Arm you know and and uh, they, they they go they buy a bottle of two or they taste it somewhere here and then eventually they start going why is it actually called Dead Arm so they read the back level and go oh that's really wild it's yeah. named after a disease that attacks the vines that kills off one of the arms of the vines and they go oh that's really cool and, and then they start really owning it and start telling other people and so it really does add value and add sales opportunities uh, by having these uh, crazy names. Yeah. And I, to emphasize that whenever I do a dinner, I have uh, caricatures of each of our label names on the walls. So we commissioned 30 of the top cartoonists of Australia <laughs> to draw a fun caricature. So I carry these around everywhere I go. There's masses of them. And, and then also I have a bag of props. that I've, The bag's been around the world, over a thousand flights I've worked out <laughs> now. And there's like a dead arm in there and there's right. spiders and crabs <laughs> and lizards and, and all weird, weird quirky things. Like we've got a wine called the Wild Pixie. Yeah. So I have a jar of toothpicks with an ecstasy <laughs> tablet. Pixie. You know. It's been stolen on several occasions and it's only going to relieve their headache because it's really aspirin but I tell them it's yeah. an e. You know. but, uh, struggle getting that through customs <laughs> I can smuggle anything through customs because they just laugh so much at all this stuff they give up even bothering about too much looking at it you know, so. yeah. <laughs> but uh, no um, it's uh, they, they know me a lot of the time in, certainly when I come back into Australia which yeah. is actually the hardest customs place in the world that, that's where you get checked out the most uh, from anywhere I know right it's like you can't bring wood there's all these things that I'm just like yeah that you, it's, it's always a I just came from just flew in here from New Zealand and just like I was even just taking like I had some muesli in my bag and I had to declare it and yeah. had a very stern conversation with them at Australian customs. Oh yeah, they wouldn't like muesli yeah. There's, with seeds in there. Yeah. That's really bad. Did you have to give it up? No, she was all right. She let oh, me through. But oh, okay. had had a very serious conversation with her about muesli, which is quite interesting. <laughs> but, uh, the other thing, I suppose, <clears throat> to take that just another step further, yeah. is that I also have been building a new building called the Darenberg Cube, which is going to be finished in six months. And it's modelled on a giant Rubik's Cube Okay. Um, uh, four cubes by four cubes yeah. um, with a pedestal base at the bottom, so it's five stories high. And instead of colours, they're puzzles on the outside. So I just drew lines up and over the whole cube, the, the whole four by four. And where they cross is uh, alternating white and white, um, uh, glass and glass with multi shapes everywhere, which is quite wild. Okay. With, with the top two stories turned permanently and blocks are pulled out and up, one's fallen out in the car park and uh, <laughs> so it's half glass on the top as well. So this is in McLaren Vale? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and to shade it, I've got uh, 16 retractable black uh, personal umbrellas, you know, with the curve and the hooks on them, not like a market umbrella, but, but a, pro a proper personal umbrella, that yeah. all f different heights and angles that are all floating in midair that all disappear with hydraulics and whatever and, and the wow. base is set back in it's, and the whole cube is floating in the middle of the vineyard because the base is all mirrors and the vines are cut off level with the bottom of the cube, so, so and in there, there are, the whole downstairs is all installation contemporary wine art, yeah. very, very Darenberg personal and the 
there's a huge amount of video art and augmented reality and virtual reality and whatever going on in there. And and uh, one of the rooms has 360 degree video going on the whole time. Wow. And it'll have a, a 15 to 30 second video clip of an artistic expression of each of our label names and wines. So in a very quirky way so that's yeah. just taking it again to that another degree of of fun and humor and, and artistic expression and that sounds just like totally well it sounds totally unlike anything i've seen at a cellar door before yeah right? you know we're, we're going I've, to change i've been around a few but uh <laughs> yeah it just seems like a very different way of of approaching that and and i suppose the thing that i was starting to think as you were talking about you're taking the bag of props around the world and all that sort of thing is i mean a big part of your role is being a storyteller Right. Exactly. And, and you know, all these dinners that you do everywhere around the world, people, they want to go out and taste some good food and wine. Yeah. But largely, they're taking their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is out and, and they just want to be entertained. They want to have a yeah. good night. You know, that's yeah. really what their main thing is. And, and so uh, adding to the humour of the night, it lifts their, their, uh, a lot and of course it lifts their senses as well when they're yeah, laughing yeah, all your senses yeah. are high so the wine tastes even better than it really is mm. and so all down in the downstairs of the cube is very sensual things uh, you know there's 30 containers of wine aromas in one room that you can go and smell each huh. of these different components which will get heightened and there's a wine fog room that you can be in which is a dense fog which is the uh, <laughs> you'll be inhaling the wine instead of actually drinking it wow. uh, in, a, in a mural of a wine fog vineyard vineyard <laughs> area in a fog and also you can put virtual reality on there and see like pears and apples flying around at you and, and other things you know the label, whatever the label name is on that particular day it might be cats flying around or wow. whatever and, and uh, so yeah, it's, uh, gets, gets all your senses flowing basically is what the idea is so so where did you have the idea for that then like um, was, was that an after 2am idea or uh, yeah would have been for sure <laughs> I, I built this model 13 years ago yeah and I, I've copied it exactly as it is from, from 13 years ago and the, the idea came about originally we we needed to build another cellar door and offices because we didn't have enough room and the old Darenberg tasting room right now that we're using is uh, built in the 1890s it's a lovely uh, we've added on to it but it looks yeah. great it's really heritage like and, and we were going to just do more heritage and I went well who really wants to see a fake heritage I thought let's do something really out, out mm. of the box <laughs> wow. out of the square it's actually in the square because it's cube but uh, uh, and uh, I went well what, how do we what what is encapsulates Starenberg so much, and it's fun and different and puzzles because our label names are such a puzzle to work out. Yeah, and wine is such yeah. a puzzle to work out. I thought, what's the most iconic puzzle? A Rubik's cube. And then I thought, I'll go one step better. It'll be even harder. I'll put puzzles on the outside instead of colours, <laughs> and it'll be the Darenberg cube, and that'll uh, uh, um, be our, our whole ethos. Really. Yeah, and and yeah. then I just need to have more fun inside it, so everyone has fun completely and, and gets has a whole experience do you um like do you get a sense of what makes a good story or what's going to make a good you know what's going to be that entertaining memorable thing and do you think you've got better at it over the years like is that a skill that you can master and develop yeah i think i think once you develop one artistic expression to the nth degree like yeah. making wine for yeah. example 
you, you start looking at other mediums around to play with and go, well, let's let's find, let's explore another artistic area. So, um, and and uh, and really, art is supplying something interesting for the masses or mm, for or for yeah. an individual group or whatever. Yeah. And so, um, but it's also a self-expression. Which is a lot of fun, and I suppose you wonder what really drives artists most of the time is the sense of trying to um, make something that uh, um, makes them feel a better person, really. Yeah, yeah. And and so if you're not being, if your wines aren't being written up the way you'd like, and and people are bagging you for whatever reasons, you know, there's people jealous and other things and whatever, then those sorts of things actually drive you to go, well, I'm going to show them, I'm going to make something that's better than anything ever done, mm. you know? and and uh, people are going to love it, you know, whatever, you know, or maybe not, I don't know, yeah. and and uh, and so uh, and getting back to answering your question about what's it like in a family business and going on from from uh, the previous generation uh, someone once said to me that really we're like custodians in multi-generational companies yeah, yeah. in that we we basically have to take our parents um, and and their forebears uh, assets um, uh, we can add to them we can uh, live off them beautifully if we're, if we're lucky and then we have to hand them to our children yeah and in and hopefully in a in a more uh, enhanced way really uh, and so that's really way, the best way to look at family assets like that mm. yeah and i think that really interests me something i um i sort of think about a lot you know interviewing people who have who've started their own business or who are on big career trajectories and they're trying to get that career to the next stage or whatever um you know there's a very um there's a very set motivation there and there's almost like with a lot of career paths there's, there's a very set path that you follow whereas obviously with you it's about about being the custodian of those those assets and like taking it to that next stage but like it's already it's already built it's already there in a sense as well isn't it so like it's slightly different from if you start started something from scratch it's yeah. a different sort of dynamic i guess it is so, a very different dynamic um, and and uh so i'm learning about starting things from scratch actually because uh, i'm starting a clothing label as well right okay uh, and i suppose the cube is another thing where you've that you know so you have those uh abilities to do the entrepreneurial stuff within Darenberg in those different ways as well as but tell me about the clo- clothing label clothing label yeah uh, so loud male shirts is where we're starting <laughs> my, my partner and I and uh, I wonder I wonder why you decided to uh, start there it would probably be uh, worth uh, just describing the shirt that you're wearing right now just for the, the podcast listeners well yeah it, it's uh, it's got enormous amounts of colour as you can see every rainbow colour uh, pinks and greens and blues and reds and yellows and oranges and, and uh, a lot of embroidery Embroidery, a lot of other little odd bits and pieces everywhere yeah. that have been stuck on um, that are quite fun and loud and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I'm very much known for wearing loud shirts yeah. um, uh, because I, I think that uh, life should be pushed a little bit further into the colour spectrum and, and characterful spectrum. And, yeah. uh, and it also... It, enhances everyone around you they say oh wow that's wild it's fantastic you know, what a great way to meet someone like that you know rather than hi you know, you know <laughs> and and you know so so i'm always always wearing loud shirts and yeah. loud loud shoes and so on but uh, but the clothing the clothing label is going to be called beakers twisterus 
Okay. That was Becky's Twisteress. It's hard to say when you've got a cold and a croaky voice like me right now. But uh, it's uh, my nickname at school was Twisted Beak because uh, <laughs> I was very dyslexic when I spoke. I spoke muddled. So it was, first of all, I was called muddled because the words were around the wrong way. <laughs> and then Twisted. And then Twisted Beak. And then... Uh, uh, it was just so someone grabbed their nose with their hand and took twin twirled it and and made that noise so that, that was my nickname at school uh but uh, and i went well i'll, I'll call it i'll intellectualize it and call the label beakers twisteress we'll have a, a, a like a loud colorful bird as the emblem with a twisted beak that turns into a corkscrew and so that's where the, the connection comes back into it so where are you up to with that is that um, we hope to have it or something out in the marketplace in the next six months. Okay. Uh, cool. So we're, we're getting a lot closer, uh, and we've got some great people who are helping us get there because it's the, it's a complex equation, uh, way of doing things. If you haven't ever done uh, shirts, you know, uh, yeah, then yeah, you know, it's yeah. a whole new industry. Obviously, finding the right people and whatever. But the technology. <laughs> I started working on this back in the uh, uh, nearly ten years ago. And the technology for printing has changed dramatically since then, so it's actually much easier now for us to do it and yeah. print multicolors in a, uh, using laser printing and whatever, rather than um, using screen printing, which we really had to do before. And screen printing meant you had to do a minimum of three hundred shirts. Yeah, sure. And so that's yeah. a bit more difficult. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it, like it's so it's really interesting to me this whole thing of um, the the family business the custodian custodian dynamic and then this entrepreneurial uh, creative um side that you have as well um like have you ever felt like you wanted to do more of that creative stuff outside of Darenberg? like have you ever felt like your destiny was always going to be to be within this business and you've wanted to break out of that like did you ever say to your dad I'm not going to be part of this business I'm going to go off and do my own thing and just do something really separate uh, when I was seven years old I sat on uh, uh, one of the gods of wine in Australia Len Evans who's unfortunately passed away now but he was the first wine journalist and great show judge and whatever yeah I sat on his knee when I was seven years old he used to come and stay with us yeah and uh, and he said to me one day he said what sort of wine are you going to make when you grow up hmm. and I said oh yummy one <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course I answered him as if I am going to be a winemaker because he's actually quite intimidating fellow uh, strong Welshman and right. uh, and uh, I didn't uh, I didn't want to upset him you know <laughs> sitting on his knee especially <laughs> uh, but so uh, I blame him that I'm a winemaker because <laughs> I had to right. carry through with it but no I always wanted to be a winemaker yeah uh, that or uh, in a band as a rock star that was the other thing that I would have liked <laughs> to have been but uh, uh, I think the, the, the winemaker is probably the easier one to do successfully yeah um, but uh, uh, I did actually dabble in photography quite a bit mm. and was offered a job in photography which I was never going to take up but I won best black and white photo in Australia in 1979 okay and I still play with photography not not with a dark room anymore but I did most yeah. of those but we, we don't need a dark room anymore and uh, so I, I, I dabble with all sorts of other art forms and you know, they, that's where the architecture with the cube came yeah, from yeah, it's another yeah. art form of course but uh, I sculpt and paint and whatever else and yeah. donate some paintings and whatever to, to charity here and there and when you were sort of just before you took over as being the chief winemaker, so you uh, went and did a lot of studying, you travelled around a lot and looked at vineyards in lots of different parts of the world. Um, and then you, you spent some time um, in your early days, you worked in Hunter Valley for Tullocks. Yes, yes. 
I um, uh, did and Hardy's Chateau Renoir. That's right. Yes, yeah, so I did vintage in 1980 at mm. uh, Tullock's and and then again in '82. Uh, and in '83, did vintage at Hardy's, um, yeah. and uh, which is you know, not far away from where I am. And, uh, and everybody then, at that time, they must have known that you're Darry's kid, right? They must know yeah. that you're part of part of the Darenberg family. And so, were they like? Was there a sense of not wanting to give away their secrets to somebody from basically? I mean, basically a competitor, right? I don't think really anyone has many secrets in the wine industry. Oh, really. Um, the secret is out there in the vineyard <laughs> and being careful in the winery and it's yeah. not much of a secret okay. you know uh, um, some people you know have a few little tricks and things there but mm. most of those have been everyone knows about now anyway right, okay. uh, so um, and, and I think when they did employ me they thought oh he'll know what he's doing he's from a winery and I've right, worked half okay. of all my holidays in the winery uh, and in the vineyard from when I was seven years old so yeah. I really did grow up with it so you grew up and around so, it so, and you, like yeah you, you know like everything there is to know I guess but we were fairly old fashioned in those days and so yeah. um, when I moved to these other wineries I hadn't used a lot of the you know gases and things so and uh, and every winery's a bit different so I think I was, I was still quite primitive and young when yeah, I yeah. so I was only uh, like 19 years old when I when we got that first job and uh, and then yeah as I say Hardy's in 83 and then I, I, I finished a degree in winemaking in 83 and then in 84 went over to Europe with two other winemakers for six months and we visited four wineries a day for six months so wow. we, I came back about twice the size nearly <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but uh, but we really got a good grasp for yeah. what happens in Europe yeah. and it was a really amazing time 1984 because uh, we were looking at 82 and 83 Bordeaux of course which 82 was the end of the armchair era where the winemakers got out of their armchair and went into the vineyard to see what they were doing it was mm. the beginning of of, uh, great wines of, of uh, Bordeaux again the, you know, through the 70s were an awful time yeah. for them uh, yeah. and uh, so that was a very interesting time to set and Burgundy in 84 was still very old fashioned still a lot of very rustic and uh, uh, wines that are nowhere near as pure as what they are today so I saw that whole uh, old fashioned thing and, and the new tra uh, transition over the years after that so, hmm. so it was good to, to see that and develop a palate and understanding so my wines actually really do reflect a european style a lot in their elegance and their soil definition you know geology definition yeah long fragrant characters that age very gracefully and for a long time with the oak completely integrated and, and no fat oiliness and whatever which which some people like to do and do you think that has that's been something that you've brought to darrenberg that's evolved you know, is that, is that slightly different from how your dad would have made? Um, funnily things? enough, dad always made wines that were not high in alcohol and were not over extracted and, and were never oily either, mainly because he was there was no machine harvesters around so you just had to get it all picked by hand and it takes quite a long time to pick everything yeah, by hand. Yeah. So you'd start early you know before the grapes were ripe in some vineyards you know and uh, and you sort of just had to do that and and then if it came in cool and whatever you just kept picking and picking and picking so the whole vintage was elegant and then occasionally you know it'd be a hot spill would come through and there'd be some that were riper or whatever and that's how it was and you know usually sold those off in bulk actually right um, yeah. in fact um, Max Schubert who's the head was the head winemaker for Penfolds who, who created Grange uh, yeah. uh, back in the 50s um, just before he died he said to dad 
Barry, I've got to take you and your son to lunch. I want to tell you how I make Grange because <laughs> out of all the bulk wine that we'd bought from anyone in Australia, Darrenberg was the the wine closest to Grange. And, wow. and so it probably meant that quite a bit of Darrenberg went into Grange in those days. Because uh, yeah. we didn't really sell much in the bottle in the 50s. It was really in the later 50s and 60s we really started to bottle our own wine. So so we were just, uh, bulk wine was a very common thing to be selling. Mm. Of course, even, even in Bordeaux and uh, and everywhere, Burgundy, negotiations and whatever, yeah. they were selling wine in, in bulk. It was shipped out in, in wooden barrels, of course, to be bottled uh, under the, whatever label, you know, Lafitte mm. maybe if you're lucky or something yeah, you know yeah. and uh, and uh, and you know, wasn't in control by the by the uh, wineries until uh, you know till that sort of period in the in the later part of the 19th century uh, 18th, uh, 20th century I'll get it right yeah yeah um so we talked a little bit about different techniques and the role of machines and and you know and and those different kind of processes um if i say the word productivity to you what does that mean in a, a wine context, and what does what does that mean for your role as an as an artist within within wine? Um, well, productivity obviously means um, that you are making the best, uh, most expensive wine in a way out of uh, that bit of dirt, um, mm. uh, uh, and it may be. When I say best, most expensive, best might mean um, actually yield quite high and turn it into a cheap wine, but that's the best we can get out of that vineyard. No point winding it right down, make, trying to make a $100 wine, and, and it's not going to get there, and you're getting low yields, and so you keep declassifying it all the time. So you're better off pumping it up a little bit more, that vineyard, getting it, getting it working a little bit faster, and, and getting a yield uh, that actually matches uh, the, uh, the price point that you're gonna be selling it at. Yeah. And, and, and then it's, you're being productive then in that vineyard rather than being, um, uh, I suppose, making a loss from the vineyard all the time. Uh, um, most of our vineyards we work with actually are all on the higher end, so that's not a very common practice that I have to have a problem with. Um, and so, uh, trying to get the most out of the vineyard is what, of course, I was describing earlier on in that we were no fertiliser and uh, lower amounts of irrigation and, and low inputs altogether, which, yeah. uh, which is decreases the price of the, the, uh, the grape production, uh, but, but also increases the quality of the grape so that we can then value add and have it uh, higher end. And, 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 and tasting through every barrel and picking all the best barrels of each of the best vineyards for your best wines is also part of productivity to get the best out of the best uh, yeah. of the best. Yeah. You know? And uh, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, to to keep your family asset going and uh, make sure that uh, it's there for the next generation, it's got to come down to that it's making some sort of money or you're building up some asset worth, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is the same thing because you know profitability then turn back into the company is going to still be increasing the assets so I suppose that that's it and and, and you can you can add value of course not only in, in the production sense of what I was just describing but in the in the marketing sense as well yeah. and, the, and the labeling yeah. and the names and the quirkiness and the cube that I was talking about yeah, yeah. all of these things will add value to the to the, the company and, and the wines uh, beyond just the the quality of the wines and it sounds like a big part of productivity then for you is is that sort of um, agility of being able to taste regularly, make decisions and sort of, you know, change whether it's that higher price point or slightly lower price point and kind of be light on your feet in the way that you 
make wine and deal with that stuff? You really have to be very much um, flowing with the season mm. and you don't know how that season's going to evolve until you start doing your blending they're two years old and you're, yeah, you're yeah. just looking at yeah. every barrel and going, well, that vineyard really worked that year. It was perfect timing because there's little heat waves that go through and cold spills and bits of rain maybe and whatever. Yeah. And they all interfere with the grapes because they're all at different stages. The grapes, they don't all ripen on the same day. So so they're all at different stages when that heat wave comes through. So so they all show off their different characters and, uh, and you can... Um, uh, make the best out of by, by looking at every barrel and and, uh, and achieve the best result that way. Mm. And 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 I think that's why the dead arm is so sought after, is because of that attention to detail and making sure that it's the best barrels of the best vineyards and there is no oiliness and it will age for forty fifty years yeah, if you, yeah. you know the good vintages. Yeah. So so and that's great wine is measured by a few things. It's measured obviously by its balance in the oak isn't aggressive and and its fruit is good and it's got some sort of concentration and 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 it has some sort of sense of place or style uh, but also it has to age very important that it has to age great reputations are not built on wines that are ready to drink right now mm, and yeah. so so that's why I'm uh, fastidious in making sure that there's no shriveled fruit and that, that we're not making oily wines we're making wines with yeah. fragrance and length and structure and, and ageability but they can still be drunk young as well yeah and so you're just talking there before about um you know as you go through the season i'm just wondering whether you have a a sense of rhythm to your busyness so we're talking about you know i'm always busy there's always so much to do and you have a lot of stuff to do outside of the winemaking around telling your stories and around you just mentioned at the very very beginning, you know, different charity events and all kinds of different commitments that you have as well. Um, do you have a time in your year when you stop? Do you have a time in your year where it kind of naturally goes to the busiest period and then breaks and goes to a quieter period? Like, there, what's there, the rhythm of the year for you? The periods are all different um, mm. because of well, it's a seasonal thing, of course. So obviously, uh, February to end of April is harvest time yeah. and all else just you you have to keep things rolling along in the background but it's all the focus is the vineyards and the ferments and and so I'll spend five hours a day especially in the first few months of vintage tasting grapes going from vineyard yeah. to vineyard working out when to pick them and is that seven days a week um I, I can get a bit of time off it depends if there's a heat wave coming through then you've got to work a bit harder yeah, yeah. if there's a cold spill comes through you, you, you can be a little bit more relaxed about it right. I, I, I get a lot better at predicting things as you get older and it's now mm. 30 odd years of vintages and you know you get a fair understanding of when when a vineyard's going to be ready and you actually have to guess when the vineyard's going to be ready because you have to book it in days and days ahead yes yeah, you yeah. Know, book harvesters and people and whatever you can't you know, suddenly say oh let's do that tomorrow when there might be lots of them ready tomorrow and and then what you do is you check it the day before and then go no i think it can last a few more days mm. and there's another few that are a little bit more higher priority let's do them instead so, so you're making lots of very quick intuitive decisions and almost you're at the beck and call of the seasons a little bit and you must have quite a uh you almost have, 
must develop quite a, almost like a, like a psychic relationship with the weather itself and with the seasons. And yeah, yeah, you end up with a whole innateness, like a sixth sense of that stuff. Exactly, yeah. that's exactly mm. right. And uh, yeah, I've had interviews on discussing how do you arrive at pricing because we buy half our grapes as well. Yeah, and uh, we've got a lot of very good growers. And how do you arrive at pricing? And and it and it's the whole sort of ethos of of what that vineyard's worth to you. Um, uh, what that grower can get away with, you know, uh, and um, and uh, you know, if, if someone else wants the vineyard, then it has to change slightly as well. Mm. And um, uh, and also you have to look at how much volume you're selling of that variety and uh, at that price point and whatever, and and how much you think you can afford to uh, to sp- uh, spend if you want to decrease the amount of Grenache you buy, then you've got to decide, well, is it the higher-end ones I want to get rid of, which you don't really want to because you want them, but you can't afford this, this, you know, you've got too much, you're spending too much on for the small amount you're selling at the high end. So you decrease those prices to those growers and they either wander or they go, fair enough, that's the way the market is, you know, and Mm. and you keep them, which is really what you want to do. And so it's quite a a challenging game of cat and mouse a little bit all the time. Uh, And, and, but eventually if you, if you're, you know, decreasing production, you really do have to get rid of some of the grapes somewhere along the line. So, so if you still maintain those, you've got to lower, even the lower ones even further to say, look, really please go away you know like, or, right, yeah, or, yeah. or go away you know yeah. uh, say look I'm sorry I just can't take the grapes you know, that, that, it, I'm sort of giving you insight of the complexities of, of it. it's it's quite complex and that's all relationships as well isn't it I mean you want you there's relationships there that you don't want to lose or you want to maintain even though it's not right for now you want to presumably have those people growing for you in the future and that's right and yeah. and it's where a lot of wine companies go completely wrong is where the accountants start taking over yeah, that side right. of the business yeah, yeah. because they do it all on numbers and they go, well, you had a big crop last year, you know, for some reason, you know, you know the crops vary a lot, of course. So they go, well, this year we only want you know, half as much Chardonnay. Um, and you go, well, we can't really go half as much Chardonnay. <laughs> I tell all these growers I don't want the grapes this year and next year I want them back. They go and find someone else and that's yeah. the way it works. So yeah. you, so you, you, you have to... Um, uh, um, remove some maybe put some wine on the bulk market although that that uh, i don't rely on the bulk market at all you might have to do a bit of uh, specialing of wine you know so let's just promote that one a little bit harder right maybe if you do some deals on it you know you've got to take into account all of these things to try and keep everything in balance because if you end up with too much wine in the winery and you do it two vintages in a row it's quite mm. it can be quite a disastrous problem you yeah know? yeah so that sort of early part of the year then that's harvest time all hands on deck five hours a day and that's when you're also making a lot of those decisions around the pricing and having those conversations with the other growers and everything else so like does everything else in your life just go on the back burner for that period so there is I still have to do a lot of things there's still all the emails there's still all sales in charge of marketing decisions but a lot of them are um, put to the side a bit and I do most of that work at night or on the weekend or whatever and you know the cube we're building yeah, that's that just still has to keep going. going. <laughs> so this vintage is going to be my hardest vintage <laughs> ever because the fit out of the cube, we're, we're actually taking over the whole building process from uh, the end of January, uh, right, right. right at the beginning of vintage. And uh, and so there's a lot of fit out that I'm in charge of and I've, I've got to get our, market, uh, our maintenance department on top of. At the same time, as running a whole vintage for them yeah. as well. Their, yeah. their vintage is hard too. There's a lot of things that break down. 
mm. uh, in the maintenance department, and, and there's a lot of uh, maintenance upkeep, just just you know normal maintenance, just yeah. you know, yeah. oily. You've got a caterpillar on your shoulder. Oh, the other one, where? yeah, uh, no other side there. Oh, blame me. It's quite a big one. He's about <laughs> two or three inches long. He's not probably gonna... about six inches, six millimeters wide. <laughs> <laughs> he's a uh, he's a grapevine caterpillar, actually. All oh, right, okay. um, there you go. But because uh, we're I under a see, grapevine, obviously. <laughs> I could see one um, going up the little wooden post uh, behind you a few minutes ago. So maybe yeah. he came all the way around. Yeah, <laughs> it could be the same one. Uh, yeah. Obviously, lights black. Didn't like the colour. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, getting back to the next stage, I suppose. Yeah. After vintage, we call it vintage that time of the year. Really, is a huge amount of work in the winery to just keep all the barrels topped and keep measuring them to see that they're finishing ferment and yeah. the, and the malolactics were uh, finishing, which is where the bacteria convert the malic acid to lactic acid, which is all the reds have to go through this process. So it's called a secondary fermentation. So you got to monitor them all, and, and uh, the, as soon as they finish, then you add a little bit of uh, sulfur to, to yeah. uh, stop the wine from oxidising. And so it's important to find that right point there. So I don't actually don't have, that's just a process, it's quite simple. So I actually can't do anything in the winemaking side of things from more or less the end of April or May, well, the ferments sort of finish on skins in May sometime. So I usually go away then and right, sell okay. quite hard. It's a yeah. great time in North America and England and Europe and whatever to be selling at that time yeah. of the year. Um, it's summer, of course, mm. and uh, um, everyone's there in May and June. And then, but July and August in, in North America are holidays. So, so I usually come back and, and start doing, uh, blending all the whites, you know, which are, don't need a lot of oak and whatever, the ones that need a bit more oak a bit later. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and I suppose I do a lot of catching up on stuff that I'm doing in that time. The really serious amount of blending happens usually in sort of September, October, November, December, and yeah. January. Uh, and so that's when I'm, there's 10,000 barrels. <laughs> so I'm looking at 200 barrels a day, and some of them get looked at more than once because you're coming wow. back over them and whatever. So there's, uh, it's quite a, a big session of, of blending uh, to blend these uh, 70 different wines. Uh, so, so uh, and, th- and then that's also time of doing all the other things and being creative in other ways yeah, well, yeah. that you fit yeah. in there because you can't, can't drink 200 every day. All day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what interested to sort of um, explore what have been the hard times for you? Have there been, uh, you know, have, have you had very particularly difficult years or what have been the sort of challenges that you've faced through your career? Okay, so the hard time in the early part of my career was in the middle 80s, of course. I, mean, I started as chief winemaker in 80, late 83, and then 1985 was the Vinepool scheme where the government paid people to pull out vines in Australia. They got $2,000 okay. a hectare to pull out their vines because there was a surplus of grapes. So they went, well, let's decrease oh, the amount okay. of grapes. Right. Well, this, will be, this will bring everything into a line. And, um, and why is that? So it's just affecting the, the price of wine? Because so no one was making any money. Right, okay. And, and uh, maybe a few winemakers, but even the winemakers weren't because there's an oversupply of wine as well. Hmm. So no one's right. making any money, so they thought, let's get supply and demand back into equation. Okay. This would be a simple way of doing it. 
course, what actually happened was that um, the export boom started in the late 80s. Yeah. And all of those grapes that were pulled out were suddenly needed. So then yeah. they started planting vines flat out in the 90s. So And a lot of old vine vineyards were pulled out, which is unfortunate. Um, so that and, wine pull scheme, did they just not... Like, why did they not think of export at that point? I mean, that Because it, it didn't really exist. Sense. Really? There was okay. no demand. A tiny little demand for wine. Very small amount for export. Yeah. But they could have thought about it and gone, well, let's actually create this demand. And, and a few big companies did, like Jacobs Creek was one of the first, yeah, and Rose yeah. Mountain, Penfolds were the first ones, uh, and, and actually did start doing things in the late 80s and, uh, and uh, because there was a surplus and, mm. and the exchange rate was favourable and, and uh, it was quite cheap wine. So they, and, and that's why it all boomed. That's why it actually yeah. did take off, of yeah. course. Um, so come back to you then in that time, so the yeah, mid-80s. So, so that, that was a tricky time because um, uh, you know, demand was poor for wine and we didn't have an export market mm. and we were selling wine in flagons and casks, you know, two-litre glass and, and, and four-litre casks and, and we had a certain amount of premium wine we were selling. There was about six reds that we were selling that were in those days $2.99 uh-huh. and that was a you know, premium price. Cabernet was the number one grape variety at $3.50, I think, uh, a bottle. Um, uh, that was, uh, there was as much Cabernet in McLaren Vale as there was Shiraz in, mm. in 1990. And, uh, and so Cabernet was actually the number one variety we considered. It was the most expensive grapes, the most expensive wine. Uh, it's funny that, you know, export-wise, everyone wanted Shiraz because Cabernet was grown everywhere in the world. They, they didn't want Cabernet, they wanted Shiraz because yeah, it was hardly yeah, grown anyway. Right. And so Shiraz became the number one thing, and everyone thinks that, Shiraz has always been the number one variety of, of McLaren Vale, and it's actually just a workhorse. So, mm-hmm. so that was quite quirky. Yeah. Um, uh, but so I suppose um, it was also a tricky time because I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, you don't, you know, it takes years to understand the flavour of each vineyard yeah. and, and, and even to what to look for and, and, to, and then how in your extraction process what you should be doing there and yeah. what the effects of changing a crusher are. You've got to go and change a crusher to see the effects. And, all and is this things. just, I mean, you, so you spent years like, you know, working all the school holidays and kind of, you know, being in and around the vineyards, but I suppose that's very different. So you knew the vineyards, but when you say you didn't know what you're doing, it's more like, yeah, like being the person who's in charge of that, I guess, and having... Having to make having the to decisions, make those decisions you yeah. don't really yeah. know exactly why. I remember saying to myself... I've got this white wines down pretty, pretty down pat. I'm pretty happy about that, but red wine's really difficult. I'm not sure <laughs> I'll ever actually really get this. Right. That's what I said after being as chief winemaker for a couple of years, uh, and I just went, "Well, no, I'm just going to look harder, <laughs> just go spend more time at the, looking at the grapes, yeah. and and try and just looking closer at exactly what's going on with every fermenter, mm. and and things happen by accident." in the winery often with fermenters for whatever reason, you know, calling didn't go on or, or whatever. And you learn, oh, when that happens, then that flavour's created. So I can utilise that to manipulate where I want to, what I want to do yeah. with, the, with all the wines. And so you, you teach yourself by accident. And, of course, that's what they say in all business is that you, know, you learn from your mistakes yeah, a sure. lot. And, uh, and these are only minor mistakes because one little fermenter, we've got lots of fermenters, so it wasn't so big a deal. But... But you learn, you learn, uh, you learn, and you teach yourself. So, so that was a tricky time because there was no export market, and, and and you had to be very clever at your pricing and buying of wine because there was um, really prices were a little bit flexible, but but not much, and and growers were swingers a lot more. 
they didn't have contracts so much <laughs> in those days. So, and most of the grapes in McLaren Vale were sold to wineries, um, and uh, and they were they were swinging wherever, you know, and and uh, it was oversupply, so so you had to find the best grapes. So, it was, um, and that was important to go out there in the vineyard. But we didn't have many staff, so I couldn't really go out in the vineyard too much. So, so it was tricky to try and be as quick as you could at understanding what the quality of each vineyard was. Mm. But also, because you go one year, it'll be an oversupply, and the next year still an oversupply, and then you'd have a low yield in that vintage, and the next year there'd be an undersupply, and everyone would be out there wanting the grapes. And grape prices in the 80s, late 80s, started going up a lot. So in 1989, right. grape prices were through the roof. There was one company who went around off, uh, saying to all the wineries, look, if you make us wine, we'll buy the wine, and you can age it in barrel, we'll buy the barrels for you and whatever. Uh, a big company that was, that was a, 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 a card, you know, one of those sort of... Um, I don't know what you call it, club wine club sort of right. things. Yeah. Any, anyway, and and they they were out there uh, telling all these McLaren Vale wineries they want ten thousand cases of Shiraz and ten thousand cases of Cabernet and a wine whatever, and we we're all fighting against our own growers, so the prices all started going up. And then it was a big yielding year, and suddenly we all had too much wine, and they went, "Well, no, we might buy it after two years. We'll hmm. have a look at it hmm. then." You hmm. know, so I learned a lot in that. That was that yeah. was a tricky time, and we that's when we created a a, a sub level price point you know and a cheaper bottled range um and uh and stop doing flagons and casts in in the 90s because right. of that and and uh, and saw that the, the cheaper 750 mil was actually much more profitable than the than the flagons and casts and and, uh, and we and also that period then I started really understanding um trying to get the most out of every vineyard too because great prices were going up quite a bit through the 90s with the export yeah. boom then you really had to be careful you're paying serious money for grapes you really don't want to um, buy crap you know and you don't want to get it wrong in the winery and so because the competition is out there everyone's yeah. trying hard yeah. and so so that was that was an interesting trying time it, it was at the same time it was all the 90s were pretty easy time because you know it's hard to get enough grapes you know to actually make enough of the quality wine that we were really booming we were our marketing campaigns were working extremely well around the world i was you know selling hard in, into all the expos and whatever and getting agents in every country so we got to 90 yeah. countries quite quickly and and uh and uh and our story was going very well so journalists were writing us up very very favorably and and so it was a really really great time so that was the easy time then the next hard time, of course, was around the crash of 2008, um, the, um, the global financial crisis. Of yeah. And that uh, Australia, I think, did a, a wrong thing uh, in the um, Reserve Bank of Australia and the Gillard government at the time were too uh, inflationary, too promotive. So we never, Australia never had a recession in that mm. period, actually. And it's because they, they gave out huge amounts of money. We, we increased our debt enormously through that period. Yeah. Of course, there was the mining boom as well, which, which saved us as well. But that was really, the boom was the, not really the pulling it out of the ground, but actually all the, all the infrastructure to, to you know, build the machines and, and build yeah. the mines and whatever. And so that, that was a very inflationary time. But the government at the same time actually were handing out money everywhere nonstop. And that, that then meant that our interest rates stayed high. The Reserve Bank didn't want to lower it you know, because it was already inflationary. So, so that meant the exchange rate stayed very low 
uh, oh, oh, ours was high, and the you know, uh, and so we were very uncompetitive. And yeah. so the suddenly all the profitability fell out of all the export market, and we were eighty percent export at that stage. Wow! But, so you so you've gone in. So what you've seen in, in your time in the business is like almost like zero percent or one percent export through to eighty percent export. Yeah, exactly. Wow, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, really dynamic. Uh, yeah. times through that period, and and then, and so then when the exchange rate is is not in your favor, then. Yeah. yeah, so suddenly that's it. so suddenly there's no. You know, we went from being like fifty cents in the dollar to over a dollar yeah. to the dollar. You know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, so uh, and you you can't change your price points really yeah. because yeah. and and of course you know, power went up, expenses went up everywhere. You know, labour prices, everything was getting more expensive, uh, while the rest of the world is actually you know deflating and mm. Australia's inflating all the time. Then you know it's even getting worse and worse for us. So 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 that that was the hardest time, and then. Just to uh, make it even harder, then the wine equalisation tax rebate was uh, suggested 10 years ago. Suggested, actually came into effect. So this is where all the companies who are selling uh, up to $1.5 million or $1.7 million worth of wine, they actually get this wine equalisation tax rebate, which is 29%, um, given back to them. Okay. For that first $1.7 million. So you get half a million dollars. It was the cap that you could get, which meant that a little company has enormous advantage of you know, 29% advantage in the marketplace to a bigger company if you were selling $15 million. So, is that, so just to explain that, so is it is the tax on wine 29% anyway? Is that how it works? Yeah, so there's a and you 29%. Just get a rebate if you're a smaller company. Yeah, there's a 29% tax on the wholesale price point. Okay. And then there's a 10% goods and services tax at the retail price right, point. Right, okay. Which is a tax on top of yeah. the tax. So it ends up being about 41%. Wow. And they get yeah. the 29% back. Uh, uh, so so that that's a, a great help. Mm. But And what that effect was was that we went from having 500 wineries to two and a half thousand wineries yeah because there was a real advantage of being you know at 1.7 million and being uh, small. dollars worth yeah. of sales uh, and, and so um we we at 15 million well, we were over that but you know, at, or at 17 million i should say versus uh, 1.7 million then you're only got a, uh you know nearly three percent advantage versus the 29 percent advantage yeah, in the marketplace yeah. so that that makes it really tough so you you've got to pull everything down to the bones you know decrease your marketing if you can you know and decrease all expenses everywhere you can so it, it made it really it made it really really hard and, and it also the competition is just increased by the volumes and volumes of wines out there compared mm. to what we were doing so so to be heard is even harder and harder now than you know, the top 100 wines that people write up when there's tens of thousands of wines the top 100 wines is like there's hundreds more top 100 yeah, wines than, yeah. than 100 wines. Yeah. It should be the top 1,000 wines right now because mm. there are 1,000 wines that would all be really worthy of that thing. You know, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, the, to be heard is actually much harder now. Yeah. So in some ways, that's an advantage in that we're already well-established. So it's hard, really hard for a winery now to be actually of size and, and be established because once you've passed that 1.7 million and you've put all, all of your whole structure is based on... Um, getting that rebate and every sale after that you're not getting the rebate then right, suddenly you've got yeah, to change your pricing yeah, structure all the time yeah. the bigger you get the more money you're throwing away almost so so it, it's hard for a company to be efficient then mm. so it's actually anti-efficiency for the industry 
it, it doesn't sell one extra bottle of wine. Hmm. So this is $350 million of taxpayers' money being given to wineries, small wineries in Australia, that does not sell one extra bottle of wine hmm. at all. It just makes wine a little bit cheaper yeah. and, and yeah. more diversity of wine yeah. labels out there. That's all it does. So, so that will probably change. It's what's already programmed to change, decrease slowly over the next few years, and, and right. but it'll probably disappear eventually. So in those tough times then when you've got, you know, you've got massive increased competition, you've got stuff that's happening in the, the exchange rate and taxation that is not favouring you as a business, like were there ever times where you thought like, you know, we're going to have so many bad years here that we're going to be out of business or like was there ever a sense of like, hang on here, like this is, you know, this is my, you know, family's, this is my ancestry and my family's business and like I'll be the one who brings it to the end of the line. Like presumably that p- puts more pressure on you. Oh, it a, certainly puts a lot of pressure on you. As, 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 the, as the, the sort of head of that business at that point because yeah. you're kind of carrying that history as well as what you're doing with it anyway. So you've really got to look at the whole business and go, where's the profitability in the business? Where's the most profitable part? Where's the, in other words, where's the best opportunity to mm. keep the business alive? And, and it's it, when, you, when you're in hard times that you really have to change. Yeah. Or else if you don't change, you, you're just going to sink. You, yeah. Uh, so you know, as they say, sink or swim. I like to say sink or run on water. Is <laughs> <laughs> really what you've got to try and do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so that's where I well the most uh, favourable part of the profitable part of the industry is the direct selling, of course. So hence the cube coming along. Right. Yeah. And and, and then I went well. Let's make it a whole gallery. So we really attract everyone. They give them an amazing experience. So mm. everyone has to come here. And and so uh, and then it'll be such an experience that you know we will charge for people to go in there because we don't want all the tire kickers you know uh, uh, but but uh, but that'll give us in, some income as well yeah and uh, you know I've had the South Australian Tourist Commission go go through and I gave them a one and a half hour tour for it telling them every little bit of detail and they said yeah. this will be the most iconic building of South Australia. And, wow. and it will have more than 500,000 visitors a year. And if it doesn't, it's only because we're not doing our job well enough to promote wow. it. As, uh, mm. And they said you should charge more than $10 a, a head to go in the door because they think that's too cheap. And mm. I said, well, you know, that's $5 million before they've even come <laughs> in the door. <laughs> and, wow. and so th- that's where I say you've got to start thinking uh, different. To, uh, and, and it's not time to say, oh, let's just stop spending altogether. You've really got to take even a bigger risk. In a yeah, which area. is which is always really difficult to do in those darker times, isn't it? Where it kind of feels like there's no way out. It's yep. like that's the time where you do have to make those yep. big bold leaps, and just it's like Apple, very did. counterintuitive at those at those moments. Apple did it, of course. Yeah, when they got yeah. rid of Steve Jobs, and everything went down down or slide quite quickly and they brought him back and they completely re- revamped the whole company mm. in, in different ways spending money in other areas and yeah and it's yeah I mean, and that's really what many companies have to do especially as they get bigger and bigger it's, it's often the only way it is down once you're really big it's, you yeah know, it's hard to stay at the top so so uh, keeping the story interesting was what i always said was the most important thing hence why i kept introducing new wines so that we could be in front of the media all the time yeah. something to talk about yeah. all the time and uh, and it really snowballed because of that and i I was going to build the cube quite a bit earlier than what we are building it right now um, because I saw that was the next stage of story that I needed to create to keep the, the brand really in the heights. But um, 
it was really uh, we, profitability was very good before 2007 or in around that area and so we were our debt had pretty much gone so we went, well yeah. we should be buying vineyards now to secure our best quality grapes so right. i went out there and bought another 200 acres of vines and that increased our debt quite a bit at the wrong time when of course the exchange rate as i say changed and yeah. profitability went out so we couldn't build the cube so we just kept the approvals alive for four years i suppose telling a few porky pies to make, <laughs> to make sure that they didn't you know, say no you have to start all over again because actually we wouldn't be able to build that building now yeah because we worked on building codes of 2010 and the building codes have changed quite a bit since then and uh, we wouldn't be able to have half of it being glass in the sun. Yeah. What are the codes? What, just like the regulations of what? Yeah, because... Like safety and all that sort of thing. Energy, energy and safety. Oh, right, okay. The safety ones you can't get around, yeah. but, uh, but there's maybe a few little holes there you can. But energy efficiency is what you know, changed, and earthquake code as well. Oh, right, okay, Earthquake yeah, code's yeah. gone up a lot more, yeah. and so you actually can't... No one could build this building again as mm. I've built it now, unless um, and glass became amazingly energy efficient. Now, and it has changed enormously in the last few years, uh, and we've got amazingly energy efficient glass in there. That's the only way we could do it, even with the old codes. Yeah. But with the new codes, it's much harder. So you may have noticed that all the new buildings nowadays all have shading over the glass, like the new uh, medical centre in, in Adelaide, uh, mm. it's they call it the cheese grater because it's got um, little <laughs> fins above every window that stick out like a yeah. like a, a cheese grater, you know, and uh, and to give it shade. And that's the only way that you can build buildings now is to have shading on them. Yeah, well, we don't have the problem back in the UK, of course. It's a different kettle of fish with our, our building. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, I just wanted to. Um, uh, focus on the future. So, uh, so you've got three daughters. What's the conversation you're having with them about? You know, what role do they play in Darrenberg and like, how are you seeing their future? Well, most of the time, um, troubling, <laughs> troubling me. That's their main role, <laughs> I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, my youngest daughter actually wants to be the winemaker. Right. Okay. And she said that she's 13 now, and okay. she's been saying it since she was eight. So a similar age to when you, you were seven, sat on uh, Len, was it Len Evans? Len Evans, yeah. knee, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, she's been exactly the same. She hasn't wavered at all. Really? Uh, and she yeah. still completely uh, says, and she loves going to the winery and wandering around the fermenters when I'm tasting through all the fermenters. I give her a taste of them as well. Yeah. And they're sweet then, of course, because they're still <laughs> fermenting. And so she quite likes them then. Uh, yeah. and, and she likes, she really listens to, what we're talking about, because when we when we taste them, we go, oh wow, that's exactly that vineyard it tastes exactly like it, and uh, you know, all that character and whatever, and the aromas and whatever, you know, and they're being formed, so they're early stage aromas, but mm. they're, uh, but it's you know, it's very, very exciting. We all get quite a bit of adrenaline, you know, hit every time, every morning we're doing this, and yeah. you're getting a bit of an alcohol adrenaline hit <laughs> as well. So it's a beautiful time to be uh, to be in the winery, of course. Yeah. yeah. But so yeah, so she quite enjoys uh, doing that. But and. Uh, what would you have done if, if none of your three daughters were interested at all in wine? Like I would have carried what? on. Uh, yeah. I mean, what else do you do? Yeah. Uh, I realised after some years of my daughters growing up that if I don't mention it, they won't even consider it. Right. And it's something that I hadn't thought about. I didn't. I thought. I always thought, don't push anyone into something they don't want to do. Mm. And then I went, well, if I don't even tell them what I do, almost, um, don't tell them the benefits of being a winemaker, yeah. they won't consider it. So 
So I left it a bit late. Well, as I say, there were about me. It was seven or eight when I started telling you. Uh, the uh, the next one was uh, uh, eleven, and the next one was uh, fourteen. And yeah. so the fourteen-year-old was no, you know, not interested, you know, whatever. And then she did vintage when she finished school. She's twenty now. She did vintage at the winery and uh, and went, oh yeah, wow, yeah, I'd like to be a winemaker mm, now. Right. And uh, she started studying winemaking a year after a gap year. And it was just way too hard because she hadn't done any of the sciences because she wasn't interested in being a winemaker. So she didn't do sciences yeah. to be, to be yeah. a trained winemaker. Now, she could still be a winemaker without doing the training, of course. You know, you could, I could teach her pretty much everything. But the science background is still very, very good uh, to help you create the art. Yeah. And, and, and it also, I, I like to think, I mean, it's good that she's, she's doing natu- naturopathy. And, and, and so there's a bit of science in that anyway. So that's probably good in some ways if she does change her mind eventually down the track. But I always think of a tertiary education as in software in, in that, you know, your computer can't do things that it hasn't got the software to do it. And, and so um, you're downloading software for you to use later on in life. So right, you're expanding yeah, your yeah. brain, yeah. Um, uh, giving it more ways of thinking so that later on when you have to rely on that thinking, it's there. Hmm. Interesting, um, which I guess brings us back to this whole thing of like art and science and the science being necessary to make the art happen and stuff, which I think I just think is a really fascinating thing. And um, I think I've just really enjoyed the... Uh, uh, conversations around the the storytelling part of it, and just it kind of feels like that's a big uh, strength that you have, and a big um, like part of what you do is to is to tell these stories. And yeah, so I, I just think it's been fascinating hearing your stories. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, so um, what have you what have you got planned for the rest of the day? So you're heading off out. Yes, uh, I've got a fiftieth birthday to go to, um, which uh, is a great mate, So, and I'm feeling really average with a bad <laughs> cold, so I'm nervous about, uh, I usually take quite a lot of really interesting older wines along. Yeah, I presume that's really always the, uh, the downside of this, is that you, you're always under pressure to impress with turning up with lots of wine and all that. Yeah, that and not, thing, not right? always Darenberg, <laughs> but I'll, uh, I'll often bring you know, great Burgundies oh, or really? Marlowe's okay. or whatever, yeah. you know, so uh, I've got to see what's going on in the world all the time. <laughs> and But uh, I'm I'm not really feeling like drinking much, but I'll, <laughs> I know I'll come up to the plate eventually. And, and then uh, tonight I'm going to uh, an awards ceremony um, uh, that uh, apparently we've won something, but that's, <laughs> that's all I can say. I can't, apparently I've been sworn apparently to secrecy. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, and so people can buy Darenberg in, in the UK and uh, probably many other parts of the world that may be listening to this podcast. So um, maybe just uh, just tell us where you can find out more about Darenberg and what you guys do. Give us, give us the plug at the end. Oh, well, yeah. If you Google Darenberg, then it'll come up straight away with our website, of course, darenberg.com. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it'll, you can find which country you're in there and you can, we can buy it there. If people come to our tasting room, they can taste through the wines and tell us which wines they want. And, and we've got a list of which wines each agent has in each country. And then we can get it delivered to their door yeah. on a date that they want. They don't have to even worry about uh, uh, going home trying to find it. And uh, so we do that. But, uh, but it's scattered around in you know, good bottle shops and restaurants all around the world. So I could be here forever telling you where. Yeah. But, uh, I'm sure if they hunt around, they'll find it. Cool. Um, well, thanks for being on Beyond Busy. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Chester, thank you very much. Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure too. Cheers. Cool.
So thanks again to Chester for being on the show. And also just wanted to thank Tracy and Kevin, my friends in Adelaide, or I should say uh, outside of Adelaide. So we're about an hour and a half away from, from Adelaide itself. And they had to drive me in because I didn't have a car. Um, so it was quite a big uh, favour to ask uh, them giving me a lift on a Saturday morning to go and do this interview. Uh, so thank you to Tracy and Kevin just for being so accommodating with that. And just more in general as well. I always have just a really great time hanging out with them. And um, yeah, look, looking forward to catching with them on my next trip uh, over to Australia as well. So um, it's also the end of the series. It's series two, episode 10 that you've just been listening to. Uh, that means we'll be moving on to series three. Uh, I am committing to doing another series and uh, we're not going to take a break. So we're going to go straight into series three in two weeks time and keep to our kind of every two weeks, a new episode schedule uh, that we've been doing for a little while. Uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the first episode of this podcast, it's also working towards a book. So what I'm going to do with a lot of the interviews that you've been hearing is take little choice snippets or themes from those and start to build a book around that on the themes of work-life balance and how to define happiness and how to interplay that with productivity. And I think all of this stuff uh, for me, it's quite an interesting process because um, the more conversations I've had and the more perspectives I've got, almost like the more questions I have and the less answers I have. So it's kind of like quite a daunting thing uh, right now in terms of uh, this book. But the idea with the podcast was not just to talk uh, about the conversations I've had with guests, but also just to let you in a little bit on the writing process. The reason I've not been doing that is because there hasn't been any writing. Uh, and the reason I haven't, there hasn't been any writing is because I've been on sabbatical. So I'm on this sabbatical period for the first half of uh, 2017. And really, as we get to the end of 2017, I'll, I'll either have a plan uh, that I can start to talk to you about particular parts of the writing process, or I'll at least kind of know when that plan's going to be in place. So um, I'll keep you posted on the book, Beyond Busy, as we get a bit further down the track with 2017. Uh, but yeah, it's the end of the series. It is the end of series two. Um, when I look back at the guests we've had, it, it's just a really, it's a really cool list. I'm really happy with the people that we've had on. Uh, in this series uh, there's also quite a few that I've recorded that haven't been released yet in the pipeline for for series three so uh, yeah I hope you've been enjoying uh, these conversations and it's just always great to get your feedback so uh, just uh, hit me up on Twitter it's at Graham Walcott on Twitter if you want to just drop me a line and say hi and uh, tell me perhaps one thing you've loved and perhaps one thing you would like to see me do differently and uh, one guest you'd really love me to get. A lot of people tweet me and say things like, I'd love to get Richard Branson on the podcast. So if anyone knows how to get hold of Richard Branson and uh, sit him down for an hour, uh, then do let me know. I'd, I'd actually love to do that. Uh, and there'll be loads of others that, you know, perhaps you just have in your head as that person would be a great guest. Well, drop me a line and tell me who you'd like to see uh, coming up in the next series of Beyond Busy. Uh, so yeah thanks for listening thanks for all your sort of continued support uh, thanks to a couple of other people Mark Stedman uh, my producer on the show and the team at Think Productive especially Harry who helped me to uh, uh, come up with uh, some of the uh, guest list for this series uh, and also Caitlin and Hannah for their help with getting the word out and doing the the outreach part of this whole thing as well so uh, thanks to those guys uh, at Think Productive HQ 
Uh, as always, places to find out more. So GrahamWilcott.com, uh, there's a contact form on there, so you can actually just uh, contact me through there if you're not a Twitter user. Uh, and also getbeyondbusy.com if you want to uh, find out more about this whole project. Uh, each episode has a whole bunch of show notes as well. So if you want to find out the websites for, say, for example, things like Darrenberg and stuff, uh, and anything we talk about on the show, we tend to just put those in the show notes. So if you've not been on to getbeyondbusy.com, uh, go and check that out. you probably find some useful stuff on there. And finally, Think Productive. So my business is thinkproductive.com. And the book is How to Be a Productivity Ninja. So if you're interested at all in uh, helping your team to achieve better productivity, then Think Productive can help. We have offices all around the world and you'll find all the details for that at thinkproductive.com. Uh, so that is the end of series two. I'll be back in two weeks' time to start series three. I uh, look forward to seeing you there. And until then, take care. Bye for now.